And it's not just a matter of individual behaviors, you know, like, you know, bad people. Not at all. I think it is in the DNA of organizations. It's, it's rooted in how organizations work. This division, this segmentation, the urge for control, the subordination relationships, all this is in the DNA of many organizations. And that's why great people joining organizations start to behave that way. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening folks. This is Ben Morton and welcome to episode 99 of the podcast in which we are joined by Celine Schillinger. Celine is an award-winning French entrepreneur, change practitioner and consultant. She has over 30 years of field experience working with both small and global organisations across several continents. She has a solid track record on transformation projects, which really does inform her vision of change, engagement and leadership. She's been a blogger since 2013 and a TEDx speaker. She was knighted by the French government for her workplace change efforts. So there really is nobody better to talk to about leadership and change. She also has a debut book that has just launched entitled Dare to Unlead, The Art of Relational Leadership in a Fragmented World, which we have two copies to give away to you for free via the link in the show notes. So if you are listening to this live, the competition is open up until the 27th of October 2022. So do click on that link. All you need to do is add your email and you are in the draw. But back to this episode, it's an incredibly rich conversation about leadership, about change and fascinatingly why the management practices from the likes of Taylor and Ford just don't cut it in the modern workplace. So, folks, without any further delay, let's dive right into this week's episode and my incredible conversation with Celine Schillinger. Celine, a very warm welcome to the show. Um, thanks for joining us. And how are you? Thank you, Ben. I'm doing great and I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. So I want to dive straight in, Celine. You've got a new book out, which I'm really eager to talk to you about soon. But before we get to that, for context, would you mind just sharing with listeners a little bit about your personal leadership experience and the journey that you've been on to, to get you here? Absolutely, with pleasure. So I've been thinking about that because it's a rather long journey now. So I've tried to identify, you know, key stages in that journey that is probably uh, the most interesting to start with. In the beginning, um, there was a, a formative stage, I would say. This roughly corresponds to my childhood in Bordeaux in the southwest of France to my education in political science and information science, and to my first decade of work or my first decade in the working world, which I spent mostly in Asia. 
I went to uh, look for a job and live in Vietnam. And from there, I moved to an Asia sales rep role. And from there, I moved to China uh, to lead the radio business of a, of a large French company. So a uh, medium size, I would say, a company. But so that's basically the first stage. And then came um, the second stage, which I would call a, uh, an integration stage, uh, roughly with my sort of professional maturity in the business world. The first 10 years I spent in the pharmaceutical business, the large pharmaceutical enterprise in which I would stay uh, 18 years. That was based in France and I did mostly uh, business operation roles for them. In this stage, there was also, I would say, an emotional development in founding a family, creating a family with my husband. We have two children. I tried hard to, so this is between, you know, age 30 to 40. I tried hard to conform to what was expected of me, including in the workplace. And progressively, I felt more and more frustrated by it. So comes the third stage, which is which came a little bit by chance, but informed by, I call it a stage of transformation, transformation of myself and transformation of my environment. And I'll, I'll tell you more, a bit, a bit more about it. Basically, it's about developing or starting to become an activist for change in the workplace. And from there, learning all sorts of stuff about relational engagement, community building, digital, social, the use of technology to bring people together and so on. And it has changed my, my life, really, and brought me to starting the fourth stage, I would say, with writing this book two years ago. And I would call it a stage of um, deepening and transmission. That's the, the journey summarized, I would say. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. Um, here, here we go. This is the first sort of question I didn't necessarily plan to ask, but I've got to ask because it's, it's such a theme. You mentioned in, I think it was the phase you said maybe in your 30 to 40s, mm. where you was really trying to conform at work. And that's something that so many senior leaders, MDs, CEOs that come on the show talk about. I don't know if your experience was the same as theirs, but they've often said they tried to conform. They tried to maybe copy another leader, be somebody or something they weren't, and it just didn't didn't work. They weren't performing at their best. They they weren't enjoying work. And then they come this moment, you know what? I'm just going to be the best version of me. And they describe this sort of take, taking off where everything suddenly <laughs> clicks and works. Like what, what what was your experience there in, in that period? Yeah, my my experience was um, trying hard to fit in a box where I'd been put, and it's it's quite um, it's a bit surprising because I was hired for some qualities, like being a bit different, having this um, international experience, uh, living abroad, uh, having this sensitivity to external to to other cultures. But then I realized that I I was expected to behave along very different uh, norms, values, etc. Much more scientific, much colder, I would say. It's as if the company had hired me, but then wanted to change me in something that was not me, in which I did not deliver 
what was expected, precisely because it was not me. They expected me to be the kind of person they would find out of um, medical school, for example, or right. you know, engineering school. And that's not at all what I did. I studied political science and, and information science because I love that. And there sure is in that elements that would be useful to the company. And yet they pretended it didn't matter. They were focused on um, things that had worked for them for the past 30 years or so. And uh, really seeing diversity and difference with suspicion. Right. And really not uh, rewarding that at all. I remember this anecdote that I mentioned in the book of this uh, co-worker who had been working for 20 years in the communication department and she was refused a promotion because her background was not communications but psychology <laughs> and i was like what but psychology is super important for communications plus she's been in in the place for 20 years and no no there was this uh, attachment to curriculum you know diplomas uh, and to linear career progressions all those things that have become completely obsolete right but they were still sticking to it whenever they wanted huh? there's a, a part of arbitrariness here as well yeah. which is you know uh, we pretend things are super you know rational and explicit and uh, you know with all these uh, performance management systems for example we pretend we try to pretend that all, all those human interactions and the chemistry be between humans can be uh, scientifically managed mm. and i think it cannot i think it's yeah. an illusion yeah and what was the outcome of that trying to conform for you did, did you change did you stay you did you leave the company i got very depressed right <laughs> i got very angry i would say i did not fall into depression as uh, or burnout as uh, some people many people unfortunately do Probably because I had other sources of joy. I had, uh, you know, young children. I had uh, rowing, uh, which is a passion. I had a supportive husband and lots of, you know, friends and great books to read. <laughs> but I realized progressively that if I kept thinking about that as um, an attack against me, as something, you know, as an individual problem, as a problem in which I was in which I was the victim, I wouldn't find a solution and I wouldn't do anything to change it. Mm. By realizing progressively that those problems did not just affect me, they didn't even just affect others, you know, my friends, my co-workers, etc. They also impacted the company, which was because of that approach, uh, because of those habits, uh, that culture, the company was losing impact and you could say you know yeah why didn't you quit well i was working in a company that was um, involved in a business i really care about there was a, a sense of purpose that I, I strongly felt even if i disliked many aspects in how the organization worked i still felt that what it worked for was valuable and we know now how valuable it is because it was manufacturing vaccines mm. and from the very beginning i've been um, blown away and and in awe with uh, vaccine science and the the vaccine pioneers and all this ability to 
you know, save children and from horrible diseases, etc. So I'm, you know, a super advocate of vaccines. So I thought it was a I should actually do something instead of just, you know, complain and leave. Uh, but what could I do? I was, it was just uh, me alone. And so that's when I actually wrote this letter to the CEO I'm, I'm talking about uh, frequently. And that letter became viral and marked the beginning of a movement, which was totally not expected by me. I hadn't foreseen that at all. But I think this letter sort of um, catalyzed, crystallized something that was, you know, under current. People felt it resonated with what they believed too. That changed my life completely. It opened me up to the possibility of collective action, transformation, not just by, by pushing for transformation, but by transforming ourselves. <laughs> Right. So, and that's, uh, yeah, it's been uh, really, really powerful. And since then, I've been trying to deepen, deploy that in other fields, learn more, connect with more people who are like, you know, more advanced in that direction, maybe. And that's now what is part of the book. Wow. So I can't merrily skip on and ask you my next planned question without pausing to <laughs> ask you to tell us a little bit more about this letter. So this letter uh, said um, it was a bit of an impulse. You know, I saw that there was the new this new CEO coming, and he asked his um, leadership team for ideas to accelerate growth. I was not part of the ex of his leadership team. I was on below, you know, in the in the organization. However, I heard about it, and uh, I heard about this request. I thought that was an opportunity. I, I managed to find the email address to which he had uh, uh, asked contributions. And I, I wrote this letter almost, you know, in just like 10 minutes or, or less. But it was a respectful letter. And it was suggesting, in order to accelerate growth, it was suggesting to do more for diversity. Because I had found that a lot of people experiencing this frustration with being put in situations to have an impact. And I had found that many people experiencing this uh, along me were women. And right. I had realized that there was a systemic issue with, uh, with women who formed 50% of the overall employees, uh, even 50% of the executives, but 0% <laughs> in the senior uh, leadership levels. And that, that, I mean, there was obviously a problem, but um, I think no one had, I don't know, seriously considered it at that time. So I suggested to do more about that precisely because we know it's a source of growth. And so I sent this letter with examples I had seen in a McKinsey report that was really interesting. And I forwarded this letter to three friends of mine with whom I had had discussions uh, at the water cooler about those topics. And from those three friends, this, those first three friends, a viral movement started. Eventually, this movement ended up gathering yeah, almost 3,000 people across 50 countries, wow. growing beyond the boundaries of the company, receiving awards, etc., and becoming a legal structure that is now an official advisor to the French Ministry of Industry. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> and do you sort of um, lead, run, kind of manage that movement? Are you kind of still involved? What does it look like now? Well, I, I got heavily involved in the first two years. 
mostly in partnership with a great friend of mine named Corinne. And Corinne uh, went on to uh, lead and, um, and support this movement. And I felt the need to replicate this approach to even closelier related business issues. Right. I didn't want to be narrowed down in diversity box. As you know, companies love to put people in boxes. Everything that, that is new and that is coming at them, like diversity, sustainable uh, development, you know, uh, all those kind of things, is sort of digested and transformed into a new silo from which it is very hard to go out. And I didn't want to be cornered in this diversity silo, especially since I perceive that few companies, honestly, seriously believe that diversity is um, the engine of growth. A lot of them just, you know, tick the box and uh, go with the flow because that's what their customers were expect. Huh? That's why early on, I said to Corinne, you're doing great and I will always support you and I will always, you know, praise what you're doing for this diversity movement. I'd like to develop my contribution in the engagement field. Those relational or new relational patterns, you know, moving from top-down, waterfall, trying to convince people kind of approach to an engagement, community, networking, connecting people kind of approach. So, and yeah, I've been uh, developing that in the field of marketing and then in the field of quality improvement. And now I'm doing that um, on my own as a consultant. So why do you think it is that despite such an overwhelming body of evidence around diversity being a driver of growth and business performance, there's just research study after research study, as well as the pure human logic that suggests like 50% of the global population are female. If you want to be representative of our of our companies, then that split needs to be replicated with, within our business. Why do you think still so many businesses don't don't believe that yes yeah it's it's uh, it's a shame huh? i think it's a matter of power uh, no one wants to share power mm. very few people have understood that the more power you share the more power you have it's killing me to see people still thinking along obsolete you know guidelines it's as if they believe that power was a limit in limited supply. And it's true that power is associated to privileges. It's nice to have power. Yeah. And also, power changes people. Honestly, uh, I mean, if you uh, appoint me uh, tomorrow, uh, the CEO of, uh, I don't know, of a super large enterprise, I will probably change myself huh? because uh, conditions change. So it takes an effort, I think, for people in positions of power to resist the comfort of this bubble, to resist the comfort of privilege, and to really uh, understand that sharing power is to actually multiply it. It's, it's about making the whole system more intelligent. But of course, it's not comfortable, but it feels great to know that many people depend on you, right? To entertain this sense of dependency 
while complaining about it, uh, but it's uh, also something that fuels narcissism and, and ego. Uh, I think a lot of uh, our leadership practices today in the political world, in the uh, business world, uh, work on ego. But it's not just a matter of bad individuals. It's a matter of all of us. What do we contribute to? Yeah. What do we, you know, worship even? Huh? We we always tend to default on the strong man. Uh, or when there's a, a woman coming in the landscape, the political landscape, mm. or even we women will be the first to criticize her, for example. Hmm? So there's this, I don't know, those um, long history patterns and it, it's deep, deeply rooted in human history i think you know this uh, and patriarchy etc we we all contribute to maintaining this system of heroes of uh, exceptional people uh, etc in so place. 21 minutes into our conversation that's a fantastic segue to get me back to the second question i i, I plan to ask you <laughs> which is to, to talk to you about your new book so Dare to Unlead, The Art of Relational Leadership in a Fragmented World. And I must admit, when I was reading the, the short description of the book, it immediately grabbed my attention because some of what you wrote just resonates so much with many of my own beliefs and thoughts around, around leadership. And there's one particular bit that I, I just want to read out for, for listeners. What got us here will not get us there. The context in which we now live, trade and work in the 21st century has little in common with that of Frederick Taylor or Henry Ford. What is revered as leadership today is often nothing more than a destructive set of obsolete behaviours that harm individuals and societies and that must be reinvented. I love that. So punchy, <laughs> so so bold. Like, tell us more, Celine. <laughs> Some some people say I hold no punches in, uh, especially in this first or second chapter that speaks about failed leadership. Yeah, but it, it's my experience, really. It's not just you know uh, some random rant. It's my very experience, and, and no doubt exacerbated by this uh, very scientific culture uh, in which I worked. Science is great, but is uh, sometimes more preoccupied with things than with the relationship between people yeah it was very regulated very conservative and i've seen there although there was this fantastic purpose i've seen executives with great uh, leadership ambitions but behaving like autocrats i've seen people more concerned with their privileges with uh, you know guarding their sources of information uh, jealously uh, deciding what their teams needed to know and when and keeping their teams in a state of partial ignorance mm -hmm. and dependency uh, i've seen people seemingly uh, rewarded for their knowledge and, and value with perks with fancy titles but completely unable to learn new things I've seen leaders who um, call for courage and innovation, but lack those qualities for themselves completely. I've seen misogynistic leaders, including women. Uh, I've seen people pretending to care about diversity uh, with absolute cynicism. I've seen people only interested in their own careers and even enjoying who enjoy to humiliate yeah. uh, their subordinates. Yeah. I've seen that. Huh? It exists. And all these people 
when they read, they don't read a lot, but when they read, they read, you know, fancy business Harvard uh, review articles that makes them feel good. Uh, they speak proudly on stage about leadership, but uh, they are, in my opinion, the antithesis of leadership or of effective leadership today. And it's not just a matter of individual behaviors, you know, like, you know, bad people. Not at all. I think it is in the DNA of organizations. It's it's rooted in how organizations work. This segmentation, the urge for control, the subordination relationships, all this is in the DNA of many organizations. And that's why great people joining organizations start to behave that way. Uh-huh. Although, and they would be very surprised if you, you know, showed them uh, in a mirror, or or if you told them what what you actually see, because they have no perception of that. This is why I I emphasize in the book the necessity to self-reflect and to, in particular, to reflect on what we contribute to maintain or change. What are the patterns of relationship? Do we keep maintaining this segmentation, subordination, hierarchical thinking, etc., or do we change that and how? You know, we can, it's, it's, a, it's, it's nice to call uh, p- people to change or, you know, or, uh, my organization needs to transform. Yeah, yeah, so what do you do yeah. yourself, you know? I mean, that, I think that probably speaks very much to your experience you were sharing earlier where you can either sort of stay stuck in that, victim mode and complain and allow yourself to become very negatively influenced or you can take control of what you can control and to quote the great quote to be the change you want to see in the world right exactly and uh, you know the other day i was uh, smiling at a survey published in a um, french magazine that says that 30 percent of french employees are unhappy about their manager 30%, which means statistically that many people are unhappy about their manager, but think they are great managers yeah. themselves, right? <laughs> it cannot be true. Yeah. <laughs> There's something we all need to reflect upon because the, the, the blame game, yeah, can keep us busy, but it doesn't lead us anywhere. So blaming my manager for this or that and I, I hear that all the time. And I have, you know, done that myself. Huh? Um, blaming my manager instead of considering the system, the systemic relationships we're in, and what I contribute to in that relationship, in those relationships. I think this is a much more promising way because not only does it help ourselves in the fact that we reclaim our agency, but also in doing that, we help the whole system. We model the type of intervention, activism, that's why I I like this term, Uh, but we model things for others and we do things with others, enabling them to develop their own agency as well, if they want. And again, that's a lovely lead into something else I wanted to ask you. So I think when we spoke off air last week, Celine, we were chatting about your view that organizations, companies can sort of, I think in your words, be a place to mend fragmented um, societies and, and, and reconnect people. Can you tell us a little bit more about that sort of, how that can work and I'm particularly curious about your 
views around how that could work when we're operating in this hybrid environment where we maybe spend two or five days in an office with people, if that, and the rest working remotely, sort of plugged into MS Teams or whatever it might be? Yes. You know, this morning on the radio, I was listening to an author speaking about the word anomie. Anomie uh, was a term invented by or uh, developed by Durkheim, which means the, the breakdown of social bonds okay. between an individual and the community. And in the view of this author, this breakdown was encouraged by the digital world, which polarizes uh, relationships and encourages the uh, the grouping of like-minded people who no longer make the effort to confront each other in exchange, right, mm. to, to, to deal with the relationship. In my opinion, the, the forces for fragmentation were at play for a long time already. And that's why I titled the book, uh, The Art of Relational Leadership in a Fragmented World. I think this fragmentation is, is here. We have to deal with it. Um, can we deal with it at a political level, you know, governments, uh, elections, etc.? I'm not sure. I think the workplace is one of the only spaces left where we do interact with people different from us. People that our social circle would not necessarily include on its own yeah. and where we are engaged in a common work. Maybe the army would be another one. But the workplace for sure is one of those places where this opportunity exists. And it's up to us to size it or not. I think we have to, uh, for the sake of uh, our societies and for our democracies even, and for the sake of uh, you know, solving our humongous challenges, uh, global warming uh, and so on. We need people to stick together and to find solutions together. So in the workplace, how can we do that? We don't necessarily need to be you know, all in person at the corporate uh, cafeteria. We we can connect uh, virtually. Most of my work for the last um, 10 years, well, I mean, much before COVID, has been remote. The better word would be distributed, I would say. Most of my work has been um, heavily hybrid and a digital connection is no less, you know, vibrant and emotional than an in-person relationship, provided you have created the conditions for this relationship to contain a part of um, a joint emotion, common emotion. And I think that the, the idea of purpose, of uh, something we explicitly try to achieve together is important. Involving people as much as possible in designing the way to the future, in designing the collective future, they will be impacted for instead of um, relying on a, a few, you know, a little group of executives or experts and then expecting that everybody else will follow. The, the leader follower model is completely outdated, I believe, mm. doesn't serve us any longer. And we really need to shift to a more collective approach of leadership. And it's not um, it's not idealistic. I've seen it work in practice, you know, around very very tangible business issues. So I'm I'm optimistic that this can happen, but of course it requires some I wouldn't say sacrifices because I don't think it's sacrifice, but some evolutions 
uh, in leadership. For example, going back to this uh, power sharing we talked about earlier, understanding that power shared is power multiplied. Jumping into the social conversation, you know, rather than uh, stepping on our pedestal and talking from above to everybody else. You know, this doesn't work anymore. We need to change. Mm-hmm. And can you give us some more examples of what that more shared, distributed leadership style look, looks in practice? You said you've kind of seen it working, but people struggling to wrap their head around it. Like what, what, what are leaders doing in that, in that leadership paradigm? I like to bring a, an example in particular, which is, um, I, I think, quite telling, but there's many others in the book. But this is an example of uh, quality improvement in an industrial setting in a large pharmaceutical company. So very regulated, very, you know, lots of norms and uh, many experts. And, and this company had, uh, obviously, a quality department right? Uh, quality department, lots of experts working together with manufacturing operations, you know, and telling people what to do, establishing standard operating procedures, uh, training courses, you know, or everything that a, a quality department does. And yet, this um, enterprise, this company had issues for the last 15 years. Every time an issue is solved, there was another huge issue with quality, with production um, uh, popping up. And it seemed that actually what we realized at some point was that the system itself, the, the interactions, the relationships had never been changed by um, the, the solutions we had tried to. There, there was this mindset of solutioneering, you know, applying a solution to problems instead of involving people in the creation of whatever solution. And so that's the shift we, we took at some, at a, at some point and um, inviting, uh, creating a movement. And a movement is necessarily composed of volunteers, of you know, self-motivated um, activists, you know, people. And so we had people joining from all over the company, from the shop floor, from middle management, not necessarily people with quality knowledge but people eager to contribute from wherever they were to doing a better work together and by sharing this quality leadership in a way with volunteers by realizing that value could come from anywhere rather than just from the top we actually changed the whole mindset of this whole system people felt respected and seen and in charge. And there was this new element of partnership, active partnership with across layers, across silos, across uh, uh, departments, etc., which was completely new. So the, the thing is that instead of trying to shortcut to a solution, we had taken another route, maybe a a longer route. It takes in it. It takes investment. It takes care. It takes a- efforts. This longer route went through the development of a human community of people who care for one another and who feel in charge. And for that, it, it was um, necessary to involve the quality department or even the manufacturing department, especially the, those executives who were used to giving orders or, you know, giving instructions or, you know, creating the solutions. 
uh, and invite them to instead offer their help, hmm? mm. create the conditions, which is a very different form of power, uh, but I believe a much more effective one, especially in the 21st century. Yeah. Just listening to you talk there, Celine, just really got me reflecting on my own leadership journey and actually feeling feeling quite grateful in many ways. So the way the sorry, the British Army trains its leaders, it, it, I guess it's quite strange compared to the to the commercial or the, the business world. So I'd spent eleven months at Sandhurst learning the fundamentals of leadership. Arguably short, 11 months is short, but very, very intense. Then I had a further three months training to be a logistical troop troop commander. And then suddenly I, I left that and was dropped into a regiment, um, in inverted commas, in charge, leading in inverted commas, a troop of around f- 35 soldiers. So I had very little, if any, technical experience. My sort of tenure in the army was really short I hadn't got promoted because I'd done 10 years doing all the uh, the other jobs I went in as a as a leader my second in command who I always saw as kind of totally on a level with me probably had eight nine ten years experience in the army I had three corporals who probably all had eight years experience some lance corporals probably with six years experience and some private soldiers with more experience than than me so because of that i think partly this was just me partly this was the, the the training i never for one minute thought that because i was again the leader in inverted commas i had to have all of the solutions and ideas it that was quite distributed my approach was always like all right lads kind of this is what we've got to achieve what do you think? Yes, there were times when I had to, as a leader, make the decision because it just needed a decision made right there and then quickly. But it was a very sort of collaborative, congenial sort of uh, approach, really. And I think that really is uh, an advantage, I guess, of the military model that I I just didn't for a minute think that, God, I, I know what to do here. Listen to me. Yes, there's there's actually a lot to be learned from the army. I think the army has been um, probably much more serious in um, understanding human dynamics uh, in collectives because it's a matter of life and death. Uh, So obviously uh, the stakes are very, very high. So there's a lot of things to learn. And what the experience you describe is uh, more and more prevalent in the knowledge economy. You've got so many more opportunities now to lead people who know much better than you. Even yeah. things, you know, who know things that you will never be able to understand. <laughs> I just think that's you know? incredible. What an incredible opportunity for us exactly. as leaders to, to have that. <laughs> exactly. So, and sometimes I hear uh, leaders who believe they've done their trans- this sort of transformation already, leadership transformation, when they say, oh, I now ask my people to come to me with solutions. Uh, first, they're not your people. <laughs> uh, and second, uh, by doing so, you don't change anything to the, the the pyramid. You don't change anything to the unequal relationships. You, you just transfer the burden on, yeah. on other people. That's yeah. all. So it doesn't change. And it, it not only doesn't it change anything, but it, it contributes to this epidemics of burnout that is abundant in our workplaces. So instead of that approach, I suggest to really focus and, and nurture the social capital 
of your organization, your team, etc., and get involved in forming relationships across silos, across layers, across hierarchical links uh, or barriers, uh, levels, and so on. Get involved in the social conversation on your social platforms internally, for example. Don't just use it for as a loudspeaker to, to, to speak to people. Involve uh, your your team and your team's teams much earlier on in uh, not in not just decision making but sense making. You know what is happening to us? What is what is the future we want? Uh, and and what sh- should we do together? You know that's the the ki- kind of questions that I believe are really important to ask. Not just you know uh, when will you <laughs> finish this uh, report and uh, you know th- those kind of things. <laughs> Celine, I could keep going having this really rich, deep conversation with you for for another couple of hours, but I'm I'm conscious of time, so let me draw things to a close with a couple of sort of my favourite quick fire questions, if we can, on a, on a completely different theme. What is a book or the one book that you would say has really had the most impact upon you, or had a significant impact upon you? This is such a hard question because <laughs> I've read hundreds of books and like thousands of books and uh, many of them have transformed my perspectives have shifted my perspectives uh, radically i will just quote the last one though the latest one and it's not the most recent one at all but i quote it in the conclusion of my book because i i i think it's phenomenal it's really great it's camus the rebel i think the ethic of rebellion he describes in this book is is fabulous and should be read by all change agents brilliant and a slightly left field question here other than your mobile phone because that's what so many of us say in the in the modern world um what is one item that if it were to be lost stolen or broken you'd immediately go and replace so i'm I'm a bit ashamed to say but that would be my glasses (laughs) I'm getting old and I can't read I can't see anything without my glasses now it's a but you know what the the funny positive aspect I discovered when I started to wear glasses is that I I am now taken more seriously mm. it's only half a joke huh? as a woman as a blonde woman mm, you know so uh, I mean there's really a, a an issue with credibility in some with some you know, in some particular audiences. So now, uh, whenever I speak, to, you know, to a group, or even if I don't need my glasses, I wear them. Yeah, isn't that isn't that <laughs> fascinating? I think it's slightly similar with people joke about the grey-haired consultant, don't they? Like I'm I'm starting to 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 go to go grey, and somebody said to me, Ben, are you going to start dyeing your hair? I'm like. I know I might I might dye it grey then I can charge more as a consultant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, Celine, thank you so so much for your time. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Like for me, the time has flown by, and I hope it's the same for listeners. Just such a a, a rich conversation and so so insightful. So thank you for your time, and I wish you um, continued success with the book. Thank you so much, Ben. All the best. Hey folks, that's it for this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. But as always, I hope that you're able to go away and do something positive as a result of listening. 
If you did enjoy it, then please connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can find me on there as Ben Morton Leadership. And finally, a quick reminder, please do go ahead and enter the competition to win one of the two copies of Celine's brilliant book that we've got via the link in the show notes. All you need to do is add your email and as they say, you've got to be in it to win it. That is it for this episode though. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you again soon. And until then, lead on. Lead on.